apparently we're recording. So let's just hope that keeps going. I'll put that right here. And um, so, yes, what you just missed, if you're listening online, is uh, a handout that I distributed, which is a map. Um, and the map is of the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, and it locates the places that we believe are the places where these cities that Jesus addressed are located today, or would be uh, in terms of today. Um, so if you want a copy of that, contact me and I will email you one. Uh, if you're listening and you're already on the mailing list, then don't do that, because you already have one, so don't get greedy. Okay? Now, we're going to begin today, and we're picking up with Thyatira and Pergamum. So we're beginning in the, is it the 12th or 13th? 12th verse of chapter 2 of the Revelation. Is everybody with me? Am I in the right place? This is the class on the Revelation, the first letters, right? This isn't the parenting series here, right? Okay. So, <clears throat> having placed myself accurately in the right room, uh, do you have any questions now that you've had two full weeks to just ruminate on this study? Any questions from really from 1 1 all the way through 229? Any of the words that you struggled with or that you found interesting or are there questions that I did not put in which you believe should have been? Okay. Question eight. What? Question eight. I'll, I'll note for everybody, by the way, that I had counted to 10. That came in at number 11. <laughs> so just, that's why you slow down. Question number eight. What is promised? Okay. Any others? Okay then. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's go ahead and get started. Which requires these. So, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Let's stop there for just a moment. He zeroes in first, introduces to those in Pergamum, and says... I know where you live, um, and it is where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast. So, <clears throat> excuse me, what do you know then about Pergamum, and what is this thing about Satan's throne? I know, 
it was like a theater or something or I gotta look at my notes. Okay, let's let's start general. What do you know about Pergamum? Okay. Okay. Uh, it's uh was rich and powerful uh ancient oh, Greek city. Okay. Uh it was uh, about 26 kilometers from the modern coast of the Aegean Sea. Which you can see on that map. Yeah. Uh, it's in uh, the Greek city in Asia Minor, uh, modern city of A-K-H-I-S-A-R, whatever. Uh, it lies south of Istanbul, almost due east of Athens. Okay. So what was it like in the time of this letter? We know it was prosperous, it was wealthy. It was the, the center of four cults okay. in that area. Which cults? Or more to the point, which was the most important of them? Zeus. Okay. So those were all cult centers. And when we say cult, so it means a little bit different than when we say cult today. You say cult today, sociologically, that is a, an aberrant group that is uh, an offshoot, usually, of a main uh, religious, recognized religious group. Um, in these days, cult meant basically the followers of a given god in the pantheon. Okay, so basically, what we're saying is there were four of those gods that were um, that they had major cities or, or centers of worship, um, and particularly Zeus. Um, Zeus, of course, would be the king of all the gods, but there was one other cult that was extremely important, and it almost becomes redundant uh, when we think about the other cities. There's a big hint for you. Yes. It was also, as a provincial capital, it was another uh, location of a, uh, the, um, headquarters is the wrong word, but a temple for the, the imperial cult. And the imperial cult, oddly enough, uh, outstripped all the others. Why would that be? Why would the imperial cult be more important to them than, say, the cult of Zeus? Well, if imperial means Rome. And I do. And Rome held a pretty firm hand over them, arm, legs. <laughs> Uh, or maybe sword. Okay, so the military might of Rome was rather immediate, whereas the threat of Zeus's thunderbolts was a bit more tenuous. Zeus gets mad at you, maybe things go bad. Rome gets mad at you, you have an army come after you. And an army that was known for coming after people who were not loyal and uh, reversing that. So the imperial cult was very important because it was backed by the military 
might of Rome. Now, in this case, that wasn't much of an issue because um, this city was actually the first in Asia Minor to invite Rome. Because remember, the, the, in those days, um, before Rome unified, if you will, Rome was a city-state, but Rome quickly became an empire. And so, yes, it was headquartered in the city of Rome, but it was no longer a city-state. It was what we would call a country or even an empire because it wasn't just uh, Italy, uh, what we know as Italy, but it was thousands of miles that Rome ruled. And as they were expanding, the city of Pergamum, the leaders of the city of Pergamum, were the first to say to Rome, if you wish to come into Asia Minor, we will welcome you. There were others that fought them because they weren't so welcome. You know, they didn't want Rome there. But Pergamum was the opposite. Pergamum basically saw the writing on the wall and said, it would be foolish to resist this. So let's go the other way. Let's make friends of the Romans. And they did just that. So uh, there, you wouldn't see a whole lot of uh, threat necessary because uh, Pergamum and Rome were allies. That make sense? Okay, now, what about the second part of that? Satan's throne. So I, I read the great altar of Zeus, the king of the Greek gods. And many scholars believe this is the throne of Satan. Yeah, and that last phrase is very important because the fact of the matter is John never defined it. Um, and so to this day, we don't have any definitive statement that says this is what that's about. But dating back quite a ways, so very close to that time, many believed that was an allusion to uh, a throne that was at this cult center, the, the Temple of Zeus. Um, it was a giant throne, um, and it, it, because Zeus was... Uh, considered the king of all of the deities uh, in the, the Greek pantheon, then he would have been seen by certainly the Jews and even possibly the Christians as, um, as Satan. Because what did they believe about Zeus? What did the Christians believe about Zeus? What do Christians believe about Zeus today? Yeah, he doesn't exist. So th they believed he didn't exist. They had no problem with Zeus, per se. However, they clearly saw a lot of things happening through cult worship that were evil, that were sin. And so who would they have attributed that to? Certainly. Uh, and that may well be what is being said here. I don't know. Um, another interpretation. Anybody get another? Any others? Go ahead. I, from what I understand, um, there was a German expedition in the 19th century. Okay. And they went ahead and excavated that area. And they found that in that area that there had been uh, sacrifices to, to Zeus. Yeah. It was, it's, of, a, of a bull. Mm -hmm. And that, that would have been in connection with that throne. Right. Yeah. And it's still called today the, the 
the throne of Satan. Okay, so that theory is that it's in essence the altar that was there. Okay. Yeah, that is kind of interesting. There is one other theory, and that is basically the, almost exactly what you guys are saying, except instead of uh, the altar of Zeus, it would be the altar of the imperial cult. And that, therefore, um, who would Satan be? Caesar. Caesar. Yeah. Now, you pay your money, take your choice. Because in terms of the context, they both fit. And, you know, neither is good, obviously. Um, and both are, are something to uh, be avoided, something that was anti-Christ as well as anti-Christian. Um, there was also, by the way, a reference to the two-edged sword. Did anybody note what that symbolizes or represents? God's authority and judgment. Okay. And where did you get that? <laughs> the uh, notes in the Bible. Yeah. Um, in the yeah, the notes for the yeah. Okay. So it wasn't the Bible, it was the study notes. The study notes. Okay. Sorry. All right. Anybody get anything else? When Hebrews four twelve it talks about the being a living active um, sharper than a double-edged sword, referring to the word of God. Okay, so in Hebrews, it is the word. So, the that symbol we know, 20 years, at least 20 years earlier, because Hebrews was almost certainly written before the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So, if this is in the mid to late 90s, 20, 25, even close to 30 years. Um, so that is a, as an image that was well known. Um, the one who has the two-edged sword. So judgment, God's word. Case could be made that the two of those are consistent with each other even. Right? So, okay, let's go ahead and move on then. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 14, I now he's just praised them, by the way. You remember that? Let's, let's go back. Because you did not, you held fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And, of course, it's a reference to the martyrdom of a guy named Antipas, um, and Antipas by no means was the only one, but Antipas is one who's being called out. We really don't know much about this guy except this. We don't have any other historical records of what happened with Antipas, but we know that clearly he died as a martyr. He died without denying Christ, without denying his faith. And so they're praising him. 
are praising, he's praising the whole church. You stood firm, you held fast, you did not reject uh, the faith. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of adultery, or excuse me, immorality. So you also have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Stop for a second. Now, we've heard that before, right? So what exactly is the problem with the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans? Well, not no, not per se. Spirit and flesh—that's uh, just Greek dualism. Uh, it permeated almost all Greek thought, but it was especially strong in the Gnostics, um, who again were were basically Greek philosophers applying that to Christianity and coming up with special knowledge is what faith is about. But they still held to the dualism, the separation of spirit and matter. So that was a very, very broad thing. Uh, the Nicolaitans may well have uh, agreed with that because that was such a, a broad philosophy. But that wasn't the exact problem. So he actually nails part of it right here. What, what's the problem with these people? What are they doing that, that makes them uh, the enemy of Christ? Balaam is a false god. And, and the Nicolaitans were... Christians, they were professing to be Christians, but they were living licentiously, correct? Yes, yeah. that's a nice way of saying it. Right. <laughs> they were living immorality, with immorality, pure and simple. Um, that immorality was in numerous different ways because they didn't think it was a problem. In the worship of Baal, um, what we would call immorality could actually be considered an act of worship. They had cult prostitutes in many of these groups. So, you know, for them, being pious, you could literally just act out all your immoral uh, uh, impulses and consider that to be pious if you did that in the name of the God, uh, particularly if you happen to do it with a cult prostitute of that God. So, it was very convenient for those who wished to behave that way. And Balaam and uh, Balak in the Old Testament were people who, who encouraged Israel to live that way. Whereas, of course, the law said absolutely not. Okay? You even have the, the meat sacrificed to the idols. Now, what's that about? Does anybody remember this issue? Okay, so what's the issue? That they weren't supposed to. That, that was... Well, now we studied this in Romans, and it was a different take. In Romans, was it, you're not supposed to do that? No, I'm talking, I, in, in, this was a Jewish thing, right? Where only the high priest, when they sacrificed, could... No, no. idols. Okay. Meat sacrificed to idols. Okay. okay. So meat sacrificed to Yahweh is a whole different thing. Different. Comes it. under the Mosaic law. Um, and even that, and right. some of it was just for the priests, some of it was distributed to the people. But meat sacrificed to idols was exactly the same. I mean, you didn't sacrifice meat. Nobody walked up with a, with a steak and laid it on an altar. 
right? You sacrifice the animal. And then those who uh, were, were the, uh, the cult acolytes, like the Levites for Yahweh, would take the dead animal, haul it back into the nether regions of the temple, and butcher it. And then they would open up a garage door. Okay, that's a little anachronistic. Uh, but they would open up a door which would front to a market and sell the meat. And that would then support the temple. So that sacrifice was not only an animal sacrifice, but it was translated into monetary value for the temple by selling the meat. And who bought the meat? Anyone yeah, Jews and Christians did buy the meat. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews are told, absolutely don't do that. Why? The meat was sacrificed to idols. Okay. And, uh, well, well, Paul, I think Paul said... Okay, well, let's, let's stay in the Old Testament first. Oh, okay. Why was it wrong in the Old Testament? Why were they told not to do it? You're on the right track. It was sacrificed to idols, but so what? I don't know. <laughs> what happened with the Israelites who got, um, shall we say, co-opted into various cultural practices of the peoples around them? Started to take them away from their own faith because they yeah. they started worshiping the gods that were around them. This is why in Canaan itself, they were, they were literally commanded to genocide. Get rid of them, because if you don't, then you're going to intermarry with them. You're going to go to their gods. You're going to serve their gods, and you're going to turn your back on me. That's what God said to them. And by the way, they did not fulfill that command, and that is exactly what they did. Throughout the entire Old Testament, the, the, the whole things, basically, all the prophets, is uh, this, this cycle of Israel turning away, and then God, okay, you want that, you got it. And then Israel running into a brick wall and calling out for help for God to God, and then God stepping in and saying, okay. And then as soon as God helped them, of course, then they started back to the cycle. So God is trying to keep them from idolatry. Now, you started to say Paul said something different. If you can say garage door, I think. <laughs> Paul said that because they don't believe and they don't worship the idols, then the meat is doesn't yeah. mean anything. If you believe that Zeus is non-existent, then the roast that you just got is a roast. It's a roast. <laughs> yeah. But still, if it was a stumbling block, Paul said. Yeah. The problem is, I know that. But he sees me eating it, and he doesn't know that. So now he thinks I'm saying it's okay to join in the worship of Zeus. And what if that leads him to do that? Then I've just made my brother, for whom Christ died, stumble. stumble. That's, it's, this thing has got like on it, and it says in Corinthians 8, uh, 4 through 13, Paul clarified the teaching on the subject. First, he says that eating meat offered to an idol is not immoral because an idol is nothing at all. An idol is an uh, inanimate object. Food, he says, does not bring us nearer to God, 
We are no worse if we do eat it and no better if we do. The meat itself is immoral. However, there is more to consider, namely the brother with a weak conscience could cause them yeah. to stumble, what right. she was saying. And that's what Paul calls them, his weaker brothers. Yeah. But the weaker brothers, now he doesn't say, I'm, therefore I'm going to do whatever a weaker brother wants me to do. He simply says, if I set an example that's going to harm their faith, then I'm harming them. I'm not going to do that. So I know this is fine, but in essence, I'll become a vegetarian. So, yeah, a number of uh, passages in, in Corinthians 8 and 10, uh, Romans 14, he addresses it, not as fully. And you will see it also brought up in Acts 21 when uh, Paul is talking about uh, Gentile Christians and what was put on them because this is one of the things that they were asked to avoid because it put a stumbling block to the Jews, to the Jewish Christians. See? So the bottom line is this eating meat sacrificed to the idol, the problem with it, the same problem that was back then, is it tempts God's people who are weak in faith, the ones who are weak, to turn away from God, to be pulled away from Him. And anything that's going to do that is bad, right? And these guys, Balaam and Balak, knew that and did it anyway. And the modern counterparts of them, uh, the ones who follow Jezebel and the Nicolaitans, also knew that. So there's two issues, but for the same reason. One is sexual immorality. Why is sexual immorality bad? You ever stop thinking about that? Breaking God's commandment. Yeah, um, pure and simple. It's, it's disobedience to God. Now, I can make, as a, a family scientist, I can make a very strong case that God doesn't tell us don't do something unless it harms us. God doesn't simply arbitrarily put those things out there. He is, by definition, love. That is his very nature. So he's going to do what's best for us, whether we understand it or not. And so sexual immorality, all forms, the Greek word is pornea, and it means any illicit sex. That means premarital sex, that means extramarital sex, that means uh, sex between two people who cannot possibly get married, such as homosexual sex. It's all lumped in together. It's everything. None of them bat worse than the others. They're all harmful. But there's one other thing that's important that comes out in this, because here we're talking about getting in between people and God. When we ignore God's word, when we ignore God's command, two things happen to us. Immediately we become rebellious. True? I mean, by definition, if I'm saying, I'll do what I want instead of what God wants, I'm rebelling against God. And now I've just put a separation between us again. I've just built a wall between us again. Whatever metaphor works for you. I'm giving myself up back to sin, though. And by doing that, I'm now cutting myself off in terms of the relationship with God. If you want to hear more about that and see a really fascinating picture of that, read the prophet Hosea. Because the whole prophet his whole life, really, was structured to help Israel understand 
that what they were doing in terms of turning their back on God and turning to various idols was tantamount to a woman turning herself into a prostitute, even though she's married, and constantly betraying her husband that way. And that's what Hosea is about. That's what this is about. It's not just the physical uh, stuff that happens, although clearly that is part of it. But it's, there's a spiritual end to this that we can't lose, that when you teach someone to do that, when you say to someone, um, you can do what you want. God's word does not matter. God will be fine with whatever. Does that sound like anything to you, by the way? God's not going to judge you. He's not going to do that. Yeah. Yeah, we're basically quoting Satan when he was talking Eve into the first sin. So we need to be real careful about that because I don't think any of us wants to see ourselves in that role. Right? Okay. So he says, I've got this against you. That you're doing, you're, you're, you've got these people there among you. And so you have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the, of the Nicolaitans. That's 15. 16, therefore, repent. And if you don't, that's my paraphrase of or else, you know. I mean, think about it. Repent or else. That's what it says. Repent or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, he's already talked about the two-edged sword, right? And whether you believe it is judgment or it is the word of God, uh, it's a sword. What do swords do to people? They cut them. They cut them very badly. The sword was the gun of the day. That was the primary weapon, individual weapon, that was used against another to kill them. And Jesus says, understand, I still have that sword. So there is a very clear threat uh, coming to them. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and a new name will be written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. And I believe that brings us to a question as well. So, <clears throat> the one who overcomes, and overcomes is what? What's the word? No, what's the word? Overcomes. Oh, oh, it's not from this week. It's from last week. What? Nikao is the verb. Yeah. Um, the victory, the having overcome. Nike, pronounced by tennis shoe wearers all over the world as Nike. Yes. Come on, guys. You got to have some fun with it. So what exactly happened to all of these Nike people? What? They run faster. That is exactly what Jesus said. If you stay there and overcome, I will give you running shoes. Or there's also the manna. Now, manna is what? Manna is what came down from heaven when they were in the wilderness. It was a, it was a food. Yeah. Yeah, there's all sorts of fun speculations about what what exactly was manna? 
And the interesting thing is that anybody who tried to keep it, it, it immediately went bad, it immediately rotted. You know, you, you had it, it's right there, pick it up, eat it. If you don't, you don't get to save it. You don't get to stockpile it. It will rot. Why is that? God was giving them what they needed. For? Their survival. Yeah, for right now. then. Yeah. yeah. Right Not for tomorrow. You want tomorrow? We'll see about tomorrow. Tomorrow. Right? Tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, by the way, does anybody know what manna means? What is it? <laughs> it's, it's Hebrew for what is it? <laughs> because the people saw it and said, what is it? So what you would have heard is they looked at it and they said, manna. <laughs> they were asking, what is it? And it just stuck. Yeah. Well, so they get manna. And then they actually get two other things, a white stone, and then on the stone is the new name. And a name which, something specific about it, yeah, only the one who, and of course the one who wrote it on the stone, but only the receiving person. Now, okay, what in the world is all that about? Why, why would manna be good? By the way, if you remember the account, uh, it didn't take very long before Israel was going, I don't want what is it anymore. I'm, I'm sick up to here with what is it. So, you know, anybody who's grown up on these stories is not going to go, all right, I get what is it, you know. So why is this a good thing? Well... God. Okay. And it and it it's gotta be good. It represents God's provision. Yes. So eternity with him. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. Because there was a, a very strong tradition that the manna would be returned or, or restored, if you will, would come again at the end. So it's an eschatological thing. Um, when God wraps up history, when, when all things are brought to an end, then God will restore the manna. Is that in the Bible, though? No, I said that was a tradition. Definitely not in the Bible. Um, and so the symbolism to them was definitely God's provision, and God provided very specifically for those who stayed faithful to him. He did not provide for those who did not. And that that provision possibly could be, because it was the hidden manna, could be indicative that this is going to happen and you're going to be part of the wrapping up of all things. So the judgment, when it comes, you don't have to worry about it. Now, he also got a stone, these overcoming people. They got a white stone. What's white stone? Okay, white is a symbol of purity. It means there's no sin, there's no guilt. Now, what would a white stone mean? This was somewhat obscure, and from what I read, we don't know this for sure, but there is a belief among many 
archaeologists and historians that this is the case. That this, Would they have the practice of casting stones? N not in the Urim and Thummim sense. I mean, well, the, the oracles may have done that. We don't really know. But, but just, I mean, it wasn't like the Urim. No. For voting? Ah. And voting for what? Voting, you get elected? Live or die. And why would you live or die? If you were innocent, you would live. If you were guilty, you would die. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's what would happen at a trial. And the jury would put black stones in for guilty and white stone for innocent. So, because innocent was purity. And black would be the opposite of that. The blackness of their sin, see? So you're going to get a white stone. And that stone's going to have a secret name, a new name for you. And it's going to have your name, your secret name. No one knows it but you. What's that about? It doesn't say in the Bible. No, it does not. Well, I'll tell you what it says to me is that there's an intimacy between myself and, and God that in that relationship we know each other by that. Okay. So there is something that only you and God know. It's, it is a, if you will, a secret between you and God himself. All right? And by the way, when you know someone's name, universally, all cultures, what does that indicate? You know them. Yeah. It is, it is a sign of knowing them. Now some, and the more primitive cultures, and this, this is in most places all over the world, the more primitive cultures would take that more literally so that you would not get to know their name. If you met them, you would be introduced to somebody and it would be, uh, this is Rocky, you know, this is Wolf, uh, whatever. But that wouldn't be the name that's really their name. That's simply the name they let people think is their name because you don't get to know their real name. Yeah. To know them is power over them. It's an intimacy that has to be earned and requires trust in the person. They're not going to do that for most people. So many of the uh, Native American tribes did this. They would have a, uh, an intimate family name. Only those in the, the family circle would know that name and would call the person by that name. And only when no one else was around. And it was a way of affirming the closeness, the intimacy. Um, but that's kind of a universal thing. Now, again, the Bible doesn't actually say that. So is that what it meant in this context? Well, we're, we're paying our money and taking our choice. Okay. Now, we go to Thyatira. Is that the right way to pronounce that, by the way? Ah, we don't know. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you. Don't you notice how that just keeps happening? So he starts off, um, and it, it's actually, I've heard this referred to as a Jesus sandwich, 
because he, he tells them something positive, then he nails them, and then he says, but the one who overcomes, the one who remains faithful to the end, and then gives them that last encouragement. Um, I was actually taught in numerous pastoral care classes that anytime you need to talk to anybody about anything they might perceive as negative, you need to do this. Um, you might want to not take it quite that literally and, and universally because that won't absolutely help you in all circumstances. There will be times when people are just going to hear the but. Okay? But Jesus does outline these things. I know what you're doing, your deeds, literally the erga. Erg? Does erg sound familiar to anybody? In English, what is an erg? Um, it actually does sound like urge, but it's not. What? Ergonomics comes from erg. It is therefore the anomics of erg. Thank you very much. I'll be here all week. Um, so what exactly is this erg stuff, guys? We watched Toy Story. It was almost the same, but no, that was erg. So... Erg is a unit of measurement, measuring energy expended by work. It's what you do. So ergonomics is the science of, of working more smart so that you expend less energy to do the same amount of work. Okay? Now, the word comes from the Greek word to do something. Okay? But there's more than one word that means do something. There's the word that do means like practice. He who does the will of the Father, Mark, or Matthew 7.21. This is the do meaning there's energy going into it. By the way, energy, energy, it's where we get the word energy. So it's a very well-known word to us. We just don't think of it in that bare form. And so whenever he says in this, these letters, I know your deeds, that's the word. I know you're putting energy into all these things that you're doing. And it's in a positive way. That's a good thing. I like what you're doing. And your love and your faith and your service and your perseverance. And if you look at the uh, footnote for perseverance, you will find that it is the same word that we have talked about before. Um, see, what does New American Standard call it? Steadfastness. There you go. Um, it's the same word that's translated patience in the fruit of the Spirit. To live under something. So I know all those things. I get it. You're doing all of that. And that's good. But... I do have this one thing. Now, when Jesus has this one thing against you, does that mean that if there's five things for you and one against you, you're really okay? See, Jesus calls us to holiness. If you have an article that is considered holy, it means it's set aside for God and must be kept without blemish, pure. So if 95% of the surface is nice and beautiful and shined and everything, 
and 5% has dog manure on it, is it holy? No, it's totally profaned. So when Jesus is talking to us, we have a tendency to want to do this scales thing. But God, look at all the good stuff. And by the way, that's not a good thing you want to do because he sees more of the stuff than you see anyway. And a lot of the stuff you say would be good stuff is going to end up on the bad side also. So you really don't want to play that game with God. But we, th we think we can balance. It's not about balance. It's about purity. It's about holiness. And it, so when he says, but I've got this against you, there's the dog manure. There's the dog poop. We don't want that in our lives, right? So now he calls it out so that they can do something about it. You tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Sound familiar? Okay. So once again, the same type of teaching. It's okay to do these things. It's okay to forget what God has said. After all, we all know better. Okay. Now, this is not Paul. He's not saying Paul was wrong. Because Paul said, it's, there is no problem unless it does anything that would impact the faith of someone negatively. And clearly that's what's happening here. She's teaching my bondservants to do this. And it's creating a problem. What's the difference between a bondservant and a slave? You willingly give your life over. Yeah. Now... There were times when it wasn't quite so willing because you incurred a debt. And, and well, no, a court could have willingly given you to pay the debt. But then when the debt's paid, and it's not one of those things that you just keep rolling up stuff. Yeah, in the Hebrew world, seven years was your max. I mean, it could have been as little as a year, but seven years was the absolute max that was going to happen. And the debt is automatically erased, period. Unless what? Unless you say, you know what, this is a good gig. I like, I've got security, I like my position, I like what I'm doing. This guy's totally fair, I'm part of a household. I don't want to leave this. And then you could volunteer and you became a permanent bond slave. You still had rights. You were not the same as a slave, even though in the Greek language, doulos is both words. So it has to do with you know, who exactly is saying it. Is it somebody from the Hebrew culture or is it somebody from a Greek or Roman culture? Because the Greek and Romans were, no, their property. But the Hebrew would be the bond slave idea. So since it's Jesus talking, the assumption is it should be taken as bond slave. So it's a translation, okay? It could, in translation, it could just as easily be translated slave because it's the same word. But the translators chose to put bond slave because of the context and to separate it from slave because of the context. I think that's probably a good translation. He goes on and says, I gave her time to repent. Who's her? Jezebel, this, this woman, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. So, by the way, who was Jezebel? I mean, the Jezebel, capital J, capital V. 
I mean, I've heard of her, but I, she was a bad person. She was a bad person. This is true. She was the most evil queen in the history of Israel, both in terms of her behavior towards the people, but also markedly so in terms of her behavior towards God. She very actively encouraged idol worship and turning away from God, ignoring his laws. She was Jewish? She was a Hebrew queen. Yeah, queen of Israel. Um, you, you don't see people naming their daughters Jezebel today. In fact, you pretty much don't see them naming their daughters Jezebel since Jezebel, the Hebrew one. It, it just poisoned the name from there on because it's a Hebrew name. And so the Hebrews weren't about to name anybody that. And then when it came into the Christian culture, it came in because of the story of Jezebel. So this woman may or may not have been truly named Jezebel, but it's not likely. It's, it's kind of like trying to find someone whose children, who's, who names their child Adolf Hitler in uh, Israel today. You know, it's just not very likely. So more likely, it's a real person. Um, the teaching, what's going on, is very consistent with what's happening in the rest of that region, as we've read with these other churches. But that this is a label. The very, the very label being put on her by Jesus is a judgment against her. Like calling somebody Hitler today. You know? When you, you've read things, and it's amazing how many different people are being compared to Hitler today, but none of that's positive. No one is complimenting the people when they do that. All right. So... I gave her time to repent. But she doesn't want to repent. What does repent mean? Okay. This word, the, the act of repentance includes turning away from sin. But this word means something specific. We've looked it up before. Does anybody remember? I don't think I put it in this week. Maybe I need to do it again for another week. Metanoia. Change your mind. She's not willing to change her mind. She's not willing to accept up here that I'm right and she's wrong. That's the core of repentance. God's right, I'm wrong. Therefore, I need to change what I'm doing. Why? Because God's right and I'm wrong. And I don't want to be wrong when God's right. <laughs> it's a bad place to be. But she didn't want to do that. She's hanging on to the immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. That's interesting. Unless they repent of her deeds. So they're getting sucked in. He's clearly blaming her. She is a leader. She has, uh, she has swayed these people. And so he's holding her accountable to a very high standard. But they need to repent too. And they need to repent of what she's been doing, of her deeds. Because they've bought into her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. By the way, 
When he searches the mines, what is he searching? Souls. This is not guessing. What is the word? Oh. <laughs> what? Kidney. Well, a kidney is not quite the Greek word, but that is the translation. It is the nephrus. How many of you guys have got nephs? Actually, it's nephrus. Nephrus. Yeah, it doesn't sound right. Nephrology, the study of kidneys. So just as heart was the seat of passion, much as we would use it, the kidneys were considered the seat of the, the, uh, the personality, the thing that makes them, uh, the, the deepest thoughts that makes them them. So... Um, yeah, it is that, but it's, it's, it's more than that. Yeah, yeah. Because the heart itself would be considered also emotional center. Yeah. But innermost thoughts as well. See, we, we do a thing that's kind of interesting. We separate thought and feeling, and with some good reason. They're not the same thing. But even we recognize that thought and feeling are intertwined. 95% of the therapy that's done today in the United States is based on that assumption. So if you can't change the feelings easily, go after the thoughts. It's easier to change them, and the feelings will follow. Okay? Cognitive behavioral or rational emotive therapy. That's what it is. And that, this is where the same thing is being shown, that all of these different symbols or words that symbolize whatever's the deeper stuff of a person uh, it's, it's not a clean system as though they're, that's where he thinks, that's where he feels, that's where he decides. No, it's, it's just, it's the deep stuff inside them. But it was associated with important organs because while there, there weren't a lot of human uh, biopsies being done, um, certainly in these culture it wasn't happening, they were aware of human anatomy because back of that sword thing had a nasty habit of exposing human anatomy. And they were aware that that human anatomy follows very closely animal anatomy. And that they were very familiar with, remember the butchers. They did that a lot. So they knew that these little things back here, if you don't have those, if somebody sticks a sword in one of those, you're going to die. They were very aware of that, so they would go after them, okay? Uh, the idea of a kidney punch today was not unknown to them, although some of the Roman uh, soldiers and certainly the gladiators uh, wore iron fists with spikes on them. So you, do, you get a kidney punch with one of those things and you don't have a kidney anymore. And that's the point. But see, here it's the same kind of belief, but it's that's... If that's going to kill you, then that must be where you, whatever really is you, is. So it's really kind of an, a rich thing. Those of us who are kidney patients today should just get off on that. So I invite you to join me. Okay, let's see. Uh, verse 24. But I say to you, the rest, of, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, 
I place no other burden on you. Now, stop for a second, and then we'll, we'll hear more about no other burden. But um, the deep things of Satan, this is a phrase that echoes the Gnosticism. So the deep things, that's that special knowledge. See, we've been talking about that in the Colossians series. And so there are deep things of God. We have a special knowledge. What is the deep thing of God, according to Colossians? Didn't know I was going to quiz you on Colossians, did you? His love? Nope. Salvation? Nope. Just tell us. Wait, we have to go through this. <laughs> I was hoping one of you would remember. <laughs> well, obviously nobody shouted it out. <laughs> well, some of, some of you are shy. <laughs> the, the deep things, the, 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 the thing of God, the mystery of God is Christ. It's Jesus himself. Well, I know, but that would have been way too easy. <laughs> Come on. Okay. I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. There's a basic thing that we do in our spiritual health assessments. Okay, those things that you're doing well, don't stop doing those well. <laughs> what you have, hold fast. You've got this steadfastness. You've got the love. You know, you've got the faith. So there's this one thing some of you don't have, but what you've got, hold on to that. Don't let go of that. Because human beings have a nasty habit of, it's like we're, we're holding and we're holding and we're holding and we see we're supposed to have that and we go like this and we let everything else go. No, it's hold it, hold it, hold it and then just bring that in. See? Because this stuff we're not supposed to let go. All those things he talked about, the faith, the love, the steadfastness, you know, we, we don't let that go. We hold on to it. Even as we do let go, Anything that causes us to turn our back on Christ, to follow that which is not truly God. Matthew, can I ask you? Go ahead. About uh, who, who have known the deep things of Satan. So we know the deep things of God. Yeah, it, well, and by the way, he says, as they call him. So he's even then, he's being a, a little as bit ironic or sarcastic, but yeah. So go ahead. Well, and particularly those who are followers of Jezebel. So, it doesn't say what the deep things of Satan are, but I can imagine. Yeah. Lots of bad things that Jezebel is yeah. pushing. Yeah. And just as all of the, 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 the things that you guys rattled off about the deep things of God all come back to the deep thing of God, to Jesus himself. The, the evil uh, side of things has something very similar. All evil comes back to evil. You know? Not just Satan, by the way. Satan is the personification out there. But when you read scripture, you'll find that most of the time Satan doesn't have to mess with us too much. We, yeah, we do it on our own. All right, so he says, hold on to those um, until I come. He who overcomes, verse 26, 
And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As also, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay. We've talked about that particular phrase over and over. So, I will give him, and who is him? Him is he who overcomes. Okay. I will give him the morning star. What is the morning star? What is the morning star? What would you say? Is it, is it um, no. Okay. That's okay. Sounds good. It does. I don't well, it's open promise for... You know, when things are at the darkest, he will step in and be there. Also sounds good, but it's not what they refer to as the morning star. They're, the morning star was a figure of speech for something pretty specific to that culture. Israel's ruler. Nope, because this is in Greek, the Greece area. Oh. I mean, it's influenced, the church is influenced by Israel, but it, it is a Grecian area. In culturally. Anybody get something else? Well, there was the re a reference to appear that the literal, that it appears just before dawn when night is darkest, the light. And w what appears astronomically just before dawn? The morning star is another name that was given to Venus. And now the, the bodies out there had both a, um, a polytheistic or a theistic meaning because of the association with the deities, but they had other meaning. And in this case, the morning star represented the dawn because it heralded the dawn. It represented glory. And so to be given authority over the morning star, to be given the morning star, was tantamount to being given authority over creation itself. Which sounds pretty big, right? How, how big is that? What, how much of a stretch is that to give them authority over creation? These are the ones who are faithful until he comes. When does he come? I'm not looking for a date. What, what do we call that? When does he come? Yeah. Yeah, the end of time, the resurrection, the second coming of Jesus, the wrapping up of all things, okay? So he who is faithful. Now, fortunately, we weak humans, we tend to die. So we just need to be faithful until we're dead. Not necessarily for the thousands of years after. It makes it a little less daunting. But we need to be faithful. He calls on us to be faithful. And if we are, now we're at the end of all things. What is to happen at the end of all things? He comes back. Well, what does he do he when he comes back? He establishes his kingdom. And his kingdom is what? Is it here? Yep. No. Well, what does it say? What does the scriptures? Yeah, don't you don't want to go there. No. 
I don't think we want to get into millennialism right now, but there, there is a strong tradition, particularly in the last 100, 150 years of Western, forgive me, I'm going to say pop theology, of the millennial kingdom. Unfortunately, it tends to ignore Jesus' clear statement that my kingdom is not of this world. So whoops, what exactly does that mean? But the one thing that he has said very clearly, and the revelation itself says it, even uh, with all of the figures of speech or the, the, uh, the symbolism, is new heaven and new earth. Everything is restored. We are restored. We're literally recreated. God's word written on our hearts becomes instinct to follow God. Creation no longer groaning as it does now. Creation itself being restored. And, and in the, the beginning, it was our job, meaning humanity, to run creation, so to speak. We were the caretakers for God. We were created to do that, to be that. And it will happen again. This figure of speech about the morning star with, with all of the stuff that comes from the Greek imagery of it, it fits that perfectly. Simply a statement that if you hold fast, if you're faithful, you get restored to the position you were created for. That's what we all look for, isn't it? To be who we were really created to be before we sinned. And that's what the resurrection will be. But it, it's only certain people. And this is the catch. This is the part most of us don't like. Who does that apply to? The one who remains faithful and steadfast to the end. That's right. The one who remains faithful and steadfast to the end. Not the one who says, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and follow this guy. I'm going to go ahead and follow Zeus too. I'm going to go ahead and worship the emperor because, you know, it's not that big a deal. And, you know, and I've actually heard people say this, and it's insurance. You know? It's what? Insurance. insurance. Yeah. Okay. It's an amazing concept, you know. There's, and there, there were, by the way, many people in that culture who would, uh, the, the more wealthy would make um, offerings to all the gods. All of them. Let's, let's just get them all happy with me. Get them all on my side. That does not work for us, does it? So, no, we have to be faithful. He does require that of us. That's not works righteousness. It's not earning it, because you, you being faithful doesn't earn you anything. But you being unfaithful means you have turned your back on Jesus. You have chosen to not belong to him. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. Again, not a very popular teaching today. There are many, many, many Christians today who don't believe that's real. And they line up with these very people that are being condemned because they're encouraging people to live as though that's not real. And that's why these people are being condemned. All of a sudden it got heavy. Any other questions? Anything else from this passage?
are more worshippers of themselves. Well, there's a lot of that going around. Yeah. Although we do tend to make idols of certain things, but I, I wouldn't disagree. Agreed, which he calls idolatry. Um, well, Paul calls it idolatry. But that's, you know, why is greed good? Because greed gets me stuff so I can get whatever I want. So it's back to being about me. Okay, folks. Not quite yet. Did you want to say something private? <laughs> Hold on. Oh, by the way, I'm not sure I know how to turn this off. <laughs> Let's see. Oh, look, stop. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>